0: Welcome to the Moving Up Podcast. I'm your host, Christy Wilson, and I'm here to dish out practical advice through experience to help you elevate your business and your life. I'm the owner and CEO of the Wilson Group Real Estate Services here in Nashville, Tennessee. We're going to be covering a variety of topics in real estate, and you'll also be hearing from expert leaders in the personal development and entrepreneurship communities. So pull up a seat because we're about to have a lot of fun it's time for you to move up. So here we are, another podcast with Heather Warmbrode. And today we have our guest, Terry Ricks. So Welcome, Terry. excited about today. We know Terry, I've known Terry for 25 years, maybe.
1: Well, I've been with Farron Bates for 20, it'll be 25 years in March, so I've known you for a little less than 25 years, but yeah. I first met you very early in my career. And, and that would have been very early in my career. Yes, and I, we were babies, We were Kristen. babies, we still are. We have so much more growing up to do, kind I of. Most people hope.
0: Yeah, most people hope, indeed. So, um, so it's great to see you outside of a courtroom. Um, <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> I've
1: never seen her in a courtroom.
0: Um, but yeah, Terry... We,
1: we never made it that
0: far. We, thank God. Yes, yes. Yes. Thank God. <laughs>
1: yes. So let's start with this. Why would a real estate agent call you? Well, first, a real estate agent would call me because the agent's getting sued. If an agent is getting sued, they immediately want to send that lawsuit to their insurance carrier, often they will call me, let me know, hey, I've sent this to the carrier. I'm going to request that you defend it, be looking for it, and then I I get it and defend them. But also, if a TREC complaint gets filed or if a real estate licensee gets a demand letter, often they don't realize that they can send that to their insurance carrier the carrier will retain me to respond to those things for them. If you get a subpoena, same thing. So I can be retained directly on any of those things, or if there's insurance coverage, the insurance company will retain me to represent a licensee in any of those four situations. And it's sometimes a good idea for a real estate licensee to contact me to prevent getting into trouble, if, if some question comes up, I have several managing brokers, owners who will call me occasionally. Uh, they don't abuse that at all, but, you know, I'll take 10 or 15 minutes to talk with them about a situation.
0: Yeah, you're very accessible, which, yes. as a broker, we really appreciate that. And no one wants to find themselves in a position of having their ethics and actions challenged. So I'm excited to talk also about best practices, for agents and brokers, what would you say some best practices are for agents and brokers?
1: Well, I have just some standard sorts of things that I will advise licensees to do. Often I'm um, asked to come talk to groups of licensees. And first... I would advise a licensee not to get into giving a client advice about matters outside the scope of your license. You know, you're retained to assist in the negotiation process, to guide a buyer-seller through to closing. But if you look at the disclaimer on the purchase and sale agreement, there is just a whole ton of things that a licensee is not supposed to do completely stay away from doing any of those things. Advising about property conditions, advising about you know what to do if an inspector says this or that. That is a big thing. Another thing that I would say is don't do things for your client that the client should be doing himself. This is sort of a big thing with all of these buyers who are coming from out of state, some of them buying properties sight unseen, mm-hmm. the licensees doing pretty much everything for the client. Sometimes that's unavoidable, but mm-hmm. if a licensee is going to do that, you need to really paper that file. And make sure that you're advising that client in writing about what you're doing, what you're seeing, what they want you to do, doing a final walkthrough for a client. That's just, it's a dangerous sort of it's a thing. slippery slope it, it because really, we've really all is. had
0: these people moving here from Nashville. We have. And you're doing video walkthroughs. You're doing FaceTime walkthroughs. I mean, I've I've had clients buy sight unseen this year. Yes. I, I just closed one. Yeah. And, and it is. <laughs> it is dicey at best. And it And is. that's what we say. Where you document everything. And someone told me this. I haven't seen it yet, but in the purchase and sale agreement now, it says something that The licensee is not responsible for how a house smells. I don't know if if that has come up. Was it you and I talk about that? Heather.
2: Yes, we did. Okay, where is that? Where did we? we... Okay, so I had it was for some buyers that were out of state, and I viewed a home for them. We were on Facetime, took lots of pictures, but the home you could tell that someone had smoked in the home. Okay, Mm. it wasn't overpowering. But you could smell it, and I feel like that gauge is different for everyone, yep. and it made me very nervous. I told them my feelings on it, but again, that's different to every every person. So I, that would be very interesting if we're not responsible for how a place smells. Because it, it ended up they walked away for other reasons with inspection, but I was thankful for that. And just thinking about that one piece, if they came to the home after they closed and said, oh gosh, Heather, you didn't tell us it smelled like this.
0: Yeah, smelling is very subjective. It is. I mean, <laughs> it's very subjective. You know, because how many houses do we go in and smells like a wet dog or a nasty mm-hmm. cat or cigarette smoke mm-hmm. and we smell it right away. The seller doesn't smell no, it. they're used to it. Yeah. In fact, my parents' house that they sold back in 1998 just came back on the market. And my dad smoked up until he was 50. I think he finally quit smoking. So my whole life, I grew up in a smoker house and it grossed me out, but I I couldn't smell it, but I was always cleaning ashtrays because I (laughs) hated (laughs) it. Anyways, little my brother and I went to the open house because we're going, let's go see our house. And it smelled like cigarette smoke. oh my God, this guy who ever lives here smoked. And we left going, Oh my God, I wonder if it still smells like that. <laughs> from like, we're dad? Growing up from when dad smoked. <laughs> you know, you don't know. Anyway, we totally went down a rabbit hole there. Yeah, of
1: Terry's <laughs> So the purchase and sale agreement now says that? Is that been a, a new addition? I'm not know. aware I of it. I may be dreaming
0: that. I may have maybe we had that conversation and then I had a dream about it. Unfortunately, <laughs> I dream in contracts a lot of times and I dream in real estate. It's it's a it's weird, but it happens.
1: And, and in that situation, Heather, um, to put in writing to that potential buyer that you've advised them that the house smells like cigarette smoke. Right. That's something that, you know, they have not been in the house to observe themselves. They haven't made their own judgment, but you've given them that advice. So when they get here, they can't say, you know, you never told them. Right. That, that is good piece of advice. Mm-hmm. But you, you nailed it.
0: I mean, just getting everything documented.
1: Well, the very first time I was asked to go speak to a group of real estate licensees, I asked every attorney in my office who has um, done real estate defense work, what would you say to them? And every single one of them said, tell them to document everything. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's really, really important. I mean, I go to the point even of advising licensees, when you're going through a home inspection with a client, get your own copy of that home inspection. Everywhere the home inspector advises some other sort of inspection or that something be done, have your client tell you what he intends to do Write it on there and initial it. Have your client initial it so that it's apparent if any question comes up that you discuss this with your client. He declined to have an engineer come look at the house. He initialed that decline and he can never say, well, my agent told me I didn't need to do that. You know, I've I've advised him to talk with the inspector about this. I've advised him that I can give references for an engineer. Um, client declines and let him initial that. And he can never, you know, come back and say, My agent told me I didn't need to do that. So smart. I I tell
0: our agents all the time, I say, guys, if you are discussing something of importance or anything at all on a phone call, follow up with an email. Hey, just want to recap our phone call. ABC, please confirm receipt. And that these are the details that because a real estate transaction, I mean, it's such a happy, exciting thing until it's not. (laughs) <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Until something gets sideways, either during the transaction or post closing. And so, any conversation that gets anywhere near terse or difficult, make sure that's documented.
1: And what people don't realize, I, I don't think, is when a transaction goes sideways, when it gets to the point of a lawsuit, it's human nature to remember things in your own best mm-hmm. interest. But then there are also folks who just lie. (laughs) And if you don't have something documented and it's your word against theirs, you've got a case that's going to trial or you're going to settle it pretrial because there's not going to be much of a chance of getting that case dismissed pretrial. It it makes things much more complicated in the litigation context. So in your... Twenty-five years
0: of experience. I'm sure part of what you do is reading people. Can you mm-hmm. tell when somebody is not telling the truth? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm just cur- Heather and I. We're doing a, an episode on um, reading people,
1: and so I'm just curious from your experience
0: when you're whether it's in the deposition, the courtroom.
1: Sometimes, you know, they're not telling the truth just because what they're saying is so contrary to common sense. It's so contrary to just the trail of, of what happened. And they are obviously manufacturing facts to support their lawsuit. And it's really a whole lot of fun to get them trapped up in that. <laughs> <laughs> I can see you would that, enjoy yeah. that. <laughs> yes, that. It doesn't always happen that way, but if you can do it, it really is fun. Yeah. Um, but sometimes people really do believe their own stories. Yeah. And even mm-hmm. though I've dated like seven mm-hmm. people like that, mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you're living in fiction, not fact. <laughs> I'm sorry. Yeah, whatever. (laughs) Yesterday's news.
1: (laughs) At least you figured that out early on. True. True. That's a good thing. That's a good thing. But you know, some people are quite convincing, and it's it's not always easy to tell when somebody is is lying. It's not always easy to tell when somebody is just reconstructing in their own best interest. But people do that a lot. Mm -hmm. A lot. Right. This is Jeff Devereaux,
0: Mortgage Banking Executive, Studio Bank. Studio Bank is passionate about what our members
1: create, and we're here to support you through the process. We provide capital and services to build businesses. We offer mortgage and home loan options, whether you're a first-time home buyer or purchasing your fifth home. We work with artists to reach their audiences. We help nonprofits transform our community. And often the most important work we do is simply empowering individuals to pursue their dreams. We're here because what you create matters. Let's create something together. Visit studiobank.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender, NMLS number one seven six one seven six seven.
0: So what is something or an example of something you've seen multiple times over the years? If Where if the agent was better educated, the situation might have been avoided or just something that you tend to see over and over? You know,
1: one thing I see, and, and it's not something that causes a licensee to get sued, but it does come up in the course of a lawsuit and it causes a licensee to really look bad. And that is if the licensee doesn't know their own forms, Mm -hmm. if a licensee doesn't understand the reasons that they're doing things. Like, for example, the Broker Act requires a licensee to verbally disclose the licensee status to an unrepresented buyer or seller before you ever provide any real estate services. Mm-hmm. Most licensees are not aware of that. Most licensees just jump right in and, you know, start working without ever telling the unrepresented buyer or seller, hey, I'm an agent for the other party, or I'm a facilitator, you know, whatever the status is. And then If a licensee is going to write a contract, that status has to be disclosed in writing to an unrepresented party before the contract's ever prepared. I see licensees backdating confirmation of agency status forms. Things move so fast in this market, there's a rush to get an offer written. They get the offer written. They get the offer accepted. Then they fill out all the other forms, including the confirmation of agency status. I've even seen a licensee prepare that confirmation of agency status after a deal closed to get his commission. Mm. The brokerage firm requires it, so they get all those forms filled out after the fact. Mm -hmm. Um, And when you get into the middle of a lawsuit and those sorts of things have happened, the licensee really looks bad. Um, They're not following professional standards of practice. And they really are made to look like they just don't know what they're doing or they don't care and they're sloppy. And even though those sorts of things sometimes are not the things a licensee is getting in trouble over, they come up in the context Mm -hmm. of a lawsuit because every little detail gets scrutinized. I have often thought of this song by, is it Don Henley? The line in the song is Lawyers dwell on small details. Yeah. Never a truer line in a song. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, it's everything gets scrutinized. And, and if a, a licensee doesn't know the forms, doesn't know what is expected and why it's expected, if you're just doing something because your broker requires it, you don't understand why that's part of your. Professional standard of practice. You don't really value that and you don't really see that it's for your own protection. And that sort of thing comes up a lot. And another example, I had a licensee get sued over earnest money. This was a a crazy, crazy situation. The buyer was a totally fake buyer. One of those. like a $3 million house, Mm -hmm. had to have pre-approval to even view the house, had to be vetted before viewing the house, and had given earnest money that was some sort of wire, that there was a good excuse for not um, having it at the brokerage firm when it should have been my licensee, didn't inform his client that they didn't have the earnest money because this was a client that he worked for a lot. Very, very, very outrageously wealthy guy who didn't want to be bothered with the details. And Mm -hmm. my licensee knew that. So he's just taking care of the details. Well, the purchase and sell agreement requires a licensee to inform both parties if the earnest money is not received on time. He never told his client. He was just taking care of it. Well, they get to closing and still don't have the earnest money. Oh, no. Uh, the closing attorney advises the licensee, we'll just take care of it all at closing with the closing funds. Seller goes through the process, doesn't know that the earnest money hasn't been paid. Buyer who is a fake buyer, right. closes remotely. They close the whole deal with this fake buyer and down the road come to realize this is a fake buyer. There is no earnest money. And this seller has, you know, staged the house lost money because the sale oh, didn't wow. go through. Wow, And he looks to his own agent who never got the earnest money, it was a large amount of earnest money for that money to be paid to him. So
0: I'm sitting here as a broker going, <laughs>
1: Oh God. I mean <laughs> all he had to do to protect himself was tell his client, We don't have the earnest money. Didn't didn't do that because he was just taking care of everything which he thought was what his uh, client wanted him to do. And in fact, it probably was. But in hindsight, things change. Sure, in hindsight, Mm -hmm. things change. So Terry, do
0: you think a lot of the issues come from, is it the failure of brokers to supervise their agents when they get in trouble? Or is it just agents being new or just sloppy?
1: I, I don't really see that. A particular type of agent gets sued more than another type of agent. There's no consistence. Uh, No, but what I do see is that agents who don't dot their I's and cross their T's, those lawsuits are much more difficult to defend because sloppiness comes out, lack of knowledge comes out, and that licensee can really be made to look bad. In the course of a lawsuit, the primary thing I see is buyers who buy a house, they get in the house and it's not what they thought it was, or there is some problem. It's the the adverse property condition. That's mm-hmm. the standard mm-hmm. type of a lawsuit. And that can happen to anybody. Sure, I mean, any licensee can be involved in a transaction where there's a problem with the house that nobody knew about. Mm-hmm. Buyers typically are going to bring in as many parties as, as possible. They're going to bring in the seller. They're going to bring in one or both licensees. They're going to be bring in the property inspector and, and anybody else who could have any responsibility for potentially knowing and not disclosing that adverse property condition.
0: So when you see a complaint or an allegation, can you pick up pretty quickly if it's bogus or these people are just just frivolous? Frivolous, that's the word. Thank you, Heather.
1: Um, There are complaints that I can look at and say, this is just a real stretch. Um, This attorney is drafting this complaint just to get this licensee in to try to have another pocket to recover some money out of. But some of them, you don't know that until you really get into The case. Right. Um, I mean, for example, I have a complaint on my desk right now. The attorney who's representing the buyer actually is a real estate licensee. He doesn't sell real estate, but he fancies himself as quite familiar with the real estate industry. And he has sued the seller a general contractor who did some work on the house he's sued the seller's agent and that agent's brokerage firm the buyer's agent and that agent's brokerage firm i have the buyer's agent his allegation against the buyer's agent is when she took these buyers through the house she did not inspect the property appropriately i mean i've already drafted a motion to dismiss that case because mm-hmm. licensees don't have any duty to inspect the house. That kind of a complaint, I look at it and go, that's such a far stretch. We're going to ask the court to dismiss it right away. And we'll see what what the judge does with that. But those kinds of things are are easy to to see on the front end. Gotcha. You had mentioned a
0: minute ago about confirmation of agency disclosure, which is one of the disclosures Mm -hmm. that we have to fill out when presenting an offer. One thing that I've really... Liked that has come out of this crazy market of 2021, is that so many agents when they put the listing on our MLS on our multiple listing mm-hmm. service, they put a PDF of yes um, offer instructions, and they list what I do documents that. I do too, mm-hmm. what documents need to be submitted along with the offer, and it is such a fail-safe way to get all of your documents at one time to make sure that that agent on the other side, you're the listing agent, you're putting that on there for that buyer's agent to present to you all the documents. And mm-hmm. I mean, it works. So that started, I guess, about a year ago. It did. And it's become very, very prevalent. And it's so, especially with so many new agents in, it's the, helpful. in the business and they, like I said, they don't even know their forms yet or they're not being trained well on their forms. So I appreciate you saying that because we, Tell all of our agents, y'all need to put that checklist to know what you're going to
1: be receiving when you present your offers to your seller. And I can see that really alleviating some confusion and protecting from just forgetting something. Mm -hmm. I I think that's a great uh, safeguard. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, we learn as we go. Um, (laughs) So
0: one question I did have too um, on, you know, you were saying what looks frivolous, what doesn't, but... Do you find that agents get complaints because you're doing so much business, you can't make everybody happy and you're always going to get someone out there who's
1: just <laughs> luck of the draw? <laughs> well, you know, the making everybody happy thing is something I'm just totally unfamiliar with because by the time they get to my office, nobody's happy. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> <that exists>. <laughs> <laughs> but agents who are really good agents and are very busy... They put safeguards in place to protect them. And and I see that a lot with, you know, they've got their contract to close people. Mm-hmm. They've got that person who lists everything that's going to happen, the timeline, their buyers know all of that. Those sorts of things are very, very helpful. And so I see agents who are very very busy but who do a really good job covering the bases. Mm-hmm. And then I see other agents who are very busy and they haven't put any of those things in place. And I think that it's more folks who don't really get the importance of documenting and the reason for informing and informing and in writing that have problems like that. So it's not so much whether you're busy or whether you're not. I think it's whether you appreciate the significance of what you're supposed to do and making sure that gets done and finding ways to take care of that. Maybe it means hiring an assistant yeah
0: mm-hmm. you know it's it's interesting we trained so many new agents here at the Wilson group and we've actually, quit hiring new agents mid spring, just because we had too many and it can upset the apple cart if, if -hmm, if there's mm -hmm. too many new ones. But one thing when we train our new agents on forms, I like to have them act like I'm the buyer and they then have to go over the contract with me. Like we did when you were new, you know, I want them to know what each of those paragraphs means. And when you go through the offer with a new buyer, if you read the whole contract to them, it's a 10-page contract. They're going to glaze over and it's a waste of everybody's time. But if you can help them understand the high notes and um, be able to understand all that, so when they ask you a question on anything, you can come back to them. It's critical to know those things. It absolutely
1: right. is critical to know those things. And, and, you know, one thing I see with electronic signing is agents just sending all the forms to sign electronically and not sitting down with their client to explain those things. That's dangerous. Mm-hmm. That's really mm-hmm. dangerous. And and the electronic signature is a real convenience. But if you don't have some system for informing your client about those forms, and if if you're going to do it all remotely, have a form letter that that hits the high spots on the contract. Yeah. That says this is the confirmation of agency. This is what it's for. Here's the disclaimer notice. Here are the high points of that, so that you know you've got it documented that you sent that to them with an explanation right. of what all of that is. Absolutely. Yeah, we and, send it in the PDF. Send
0: it in the PDF format first before anybody signs, with the with explaining what each document is. Yes. Yeah. Yes.
1: Mm -hmm. And, I mean, interestingly, um, I have a case in my office right now where a licensee sent a contract for his buyer to sign with a buyer rep agreement and some other documents. Buyer zips through and signs it all, didn't even know he'd signed a buyer rep agreement. Yeah. Um, Later gets involved with a different agent, wants to go with this other agent makes an offer on a different property. First agent sues for the commission because he had a buyer rep agreement. Well, this buyer says, I never knew I even signed that. Well, there's a decision by one of the circuit judges in Williamson County that says if a licensee doesn't explain that buyer rep agreement to the buyer before the buyer signs it, it's not valid. So we're going to be litigating that point. It'll be interesting to see how that it comes is very out. very wow. interesting. Yes. And, and he said, you can't just count on the explanation in the form and the buyer reading the form and getting the explanation and then signing. You have to explain that form to the buyer before the buyer signs it to have a valid buyer rep agreement. So I have mentally reworked our whole training process. (laughs) And
2: I'm thinking, you know, so I'm working with some sellers now and I've gone to their home and I've met with them and we've had coffee and I've explained the forms to them. But now I'm thinking, gosh, do I need to do that in email as well? Because it was just me at their house. I didn't have them initial that I had explained the forms to them, but I was there for an hour and a half
1: going over everything. (laughs) And, And that's... You know that's the way it used to be done, mm-hmm. and I really like having it done that way, because I mean, if you were to get sued in that transaction, you would come in and you would you would testify about here's what I told them, here's what I went over with them. I asked them if they had any questions. They didn't have any questions. I spent an hour and a half, mm-hmm. um, and and that is valid proof of that having been explained explained to them. If you back that up with an email saying, you know, we we spent this time explained okay. all these forms, yeah, uh, you know, as a follow up, please let me know if you have any questions. Perfect. Um, then you've got in writing what you did and that makes it hard for them to come and deny right. come in and deny that you did that.
2: And speaking of email, when I started in this business, um, Christy turned me into an email hoarder.
1: So I, <laughs> get save <for> everything. Good <laughs> for her.
2: And in the last six to eight months I've turned into a text hoarder as well. <laughs> so it's just we just really have to keep everything. How long would you say we need to keep emails? for example, on a closing that I've had and just correspondence back and forth.
1: Basically, the... the typical statute of limitations is going to be three years. So, you know, what I would suggest doing is just having your folders for each transaction and emails, text messages that pertain to that transaction, stick them all in that folder. Printing them all? Well, you don't have to print them, but your, your electronic okay. folder, okay. have them all there. And so after three years, if you want to clean that out or, or maybe a little more than than three years just is the statute of limitations on a contract three years and six. It's six years. If you're suing for breach of contract, licensees rarely get sued for breach of contract. It's typically breach of a, a duty. And the courts have basically held the three three year statute of limitations would apply. Okay. That's a property damage statute of limitations. Okay. Okay. Good to know. All right. So
0: is there anything that frustrates you on your end in this business? Oh, yes. Ah. <laughs> well, <what's>, what <laughs> is there, is there
1: anything that doesn't? Right. <laughs> That's a better question. Um, uh, you know, I think the most frustrating thing to deal with is just difficult People. Mm -hmm. Um, And that can be an attorney on the other side Mm -hmm. who is just difficult, unreasonable, and a plaintiff who is very difficult and unreasonable. Sometimes the attorney may be fairly easy to work with, but the client is outrageously difficult. It's hard in those sorts of situations to really make progress. And it, it, it's hard, even if a case should be settled, it's hard to, to come to a, a reasonable resolution. Those things are very frustrating. Mm-hmm. And then what gives you the most satisfaction? Uh, the most satisfaction, two things, I think. One, getting a good result for a client who's really appreciative. That really does give me a lot of satisfaction. I had some clients once who sent me a $300 gift certificate to Etc. and six bottles of wine. I was just like, oh, wow. wow. <laughs> uh, Thank <this> you. Is, <laughs> wow. Um, but then the other thing, and, and this is Maybe a little sick, but. <laughs>
0: <laughs> sick isn't good or I, sick isn't, you never well, know anymore.
1: It's kind of both, I guess. Um, I love winning against a, a difficult lawyer yeah. or a difficult yeah. plaintiff. It, it's very satisfying to, to just win against a person like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's fun. Yes. <laughs> so how often do things actually go to court and not get settled? Not often. I saw a statistic in. Davidson County, and this has probably been two or three years ago, 97% of cases get settled or get dismissed pre-trial. So 3% at that point in time. And and part of the reason is many of the courts require mediation, Mm -hmm. Um, and and if a, a case is going to be mediated, you're expected to come with some sort of money to pay. And, you know, mediator's job is to get parties to meet in the middle. So not a a lot of cases get tried anymore. Got it. Got it. Some do, but not a lot. Yeah.
0: Well, as we wrap this up, Heather and I are always curious, what is the craziest situation, lawsuit, claim, allegation you've, you've been involved
1: in? That one's easy. (laughs) I mean, I've had some crazy, crazy stuff, but a few years ago, and this maybe four, maybe five years ago now, I'll lose track of time. I was representing a commercial licensee and he had some property listed for sale. A buyer's agent contacted him and asked him if he had a different piece of property for sale he said no but I've got this other property down the street just a little ways and this buyer's agent was representing a national retail company so this buyer's agent says oh well I'm really more interested in that one anyway they never meet they never go to the property they're you know negotiating talking by phone doing documents um, electronically This national retailer has, you know, in-house counsel, in-house people who are reviewing the plat, the plans, uh, the contracts, everything. Well, this is a vacant lot. National retailer is having a building built on this vacant lot and the building's built. It's almost ready. This retailer has some representatives go to look at the building. They go to the property and there's no building on it. The building got built on the wrong property. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. (laughs) I didn't know where you were going with this. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) And nobody realized it until the building was almost complete. And so this retailer never intended to move into this property. My understanding is folks within the company got fired. This buyer's agent got fired. But, of course, you know, they're looking for anybody they can to get money from. So they're threatening the agent who had the property listed. He... (laughs) He gets a call from his client who's just all studying but, what well, well, hey, th- th- they went out there that the, the the property's on the wrong lot, and my client's like, "Oh, come on, you're kidding. No, 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 i'm'm I'm, I'm not kidding. It's on the wrong lot. And so of course, my client panics and thinks he's written in the wrong parcel numbers, but right. he goes and checks and he did everything hmm. right. okay um, they, You know, we're threatening to sue him, and and he just digs his heels in. I'm not paying anything. I didn't do anything wrong here. They all end up settling. We don't get sued. It all turned out fine for my guy, but somebody paid some money there. I don't know. I kind of do know who, but I don't know how much. (laughs) So that was probably the craziest situation I've seen.
0: So that has happened, you know, in, in Middle Tennessee, especially Nashville. And the inner city of Nashville here, there's the two houses on one lot situation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they're almost identical houses that they put on the one lot, whether they're attached or detached. And we had a client once who was buying one, and it was, let's say, 1405 A Main Street and 1405 B Main Street. And they were buying A. It was in the contract on A as A. It was in the MLS as A. It looked on the picture like a well they had flipped the builder had flipped the numbers the seller's agent had put everything a but it should have been b and they go to do the final walkthrough and they're in the wrong like no no this is the one you're buying i mean we got it all i can't remember how we got this worked out It never went to court or anything but it was a big mess so on new new builds we tell all of our agents you take that plat and you circle which one is it the left one or the right one that you're buying uh-huh. so everyone is clear, it sounds like overkill, but that was a situation that stayed with me that was very challenging. Yeah. <laughs> Almost and nothing is means. overkill, yeah, nothing is.
1: That's right. <laughs> <laughs> the, the funny thing in this situation, one piece of property was near the interstate, which is what this national retailer wanted, the other one was up the road a bit on the opposite side of the road, oh, wow. and they had the plat. I mean, all was correct, and it showed up on the opposite side of the road. How folks miss that is That's really being crazy. Crazy, mm-hmm. crazy. So the national
0: retailer, their corporate office wasn't here in Nashville. They were out somewhere else right. and never, okay.
1: Right. Wow. Yes. Terry saved the day. <laughs> Not, well you know, my client just dug his heels in and all I could say is I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. We don't have anything to help you with. Right. And yeah. they got it worked out. So, man, that's great.
0: Well, Terry, it has been amazing having you here today. And it was fun. I've yeah. learned Enjoyed so it. many things. Next time that you're here, I'm going to be sitting here with a pen and uh, taking yes. some better notes. So I can't wait to listen to this podcast so I can take the notes. Yes. But thanks. Yes, well, Thank thanks you for so much. Oh, I really appreciate it. Good All to see right. you guys too, y'all. Yeah. Great. And, guys, it, for those still listening, remember if you have any questions, send them to podcast at wilsongrouprealestate.com. Heather and I will be happy to answer them for you on an upcoming episode. Have a great day. The Wilson Group Real Estate Services is one of Nashville's top premier boutique real estate firms. We specialize in working with buyers and sellers. For housing, investment, and commercial needs, as well as offering a full-service property management division for your investments. Check out our website today at Estate.com.
2: Hey there, we hope you enjoyed this episode. Be sure to snap a screenshot of your podcast app on your phone, post it to your Instagram stories, and tag at Podcast and let us know your favorite takeaway from this episode.